Pitchfork listeners, recently five Republicans joined House Democrats in passing the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, leaving it to our bare Democratic majority in the Senate for final passage. It's a big fight and a really important one for workers uh, throughout the country, whether you're unionized or not. So to learn a bit more about the PRO Act and what it does to address the Orwellian-named right-to-work laws in over two dozen states, I'm excited to talk with Shane Larson from the Communication Workers of America. My name is Shane Larson. I am uh, Assistant to the President, Senior Director for Government Affairs and Policy at the Communications Workers of America, CWA. Folks know the uh, CWA, you, you represent the telecommunications workers at the telecommunications companies, also uh, the news, Newspaper Guild, right? Correct, correct. We've got a bunch of really um, great members. Uh, as you mentioned, the telecommunications sector, folks who work at AT&T, Verizon, CenturyLink, Quest, um, as well as the News Guild. We also represent NABIT, which is broadcast technicians. Uh, the Association of Flight Attendants is part of CWA. And we also have a lot of healthcare workers and public sector workers in New Jersey, New York, and, and other states around the country. The House recently passed the PRO Act, uh, which is the um, Protecting the Right to Organize Act. Tell us a little bit about what this would do. Well, this bill would actually help level the playing field between for workers in the economy. Um, it would help reverse the 60-year-long effort by corporations in this country to basically uh, chip away at our labor laws to the point where workers today have literally no rights on the job. Uh, corporations have sort of unfettered ability um, to prevent workers from organizing. Um, the most important thing about the, the PRO Act is it would allow workers to, without fear of intimidation or retaliation, to talk amongst themselves, talk about things like working conditions, um, health and safety concerns, uh, wages, uh, and be able to work together to try to improve those conditions collectively at the job. One of the main uh, points of this is when workers are trying to uh, organize and start a union in a workplace. Right now, uh, employers use all sorts of intimidation tactics. They call mandatory meetings. They put uh, anti-union propaganda in front of the workers. They, they basically intimidate workers from voting for unions. And this would um, prevent that. Yes, this would help prevent that. I mean, as you said, Goldie, uh, employers have the ability to do whatever they want. They spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars each year uh, trying to prevent workers from forming unions, um, from things such as holding captive audience meetings where they force employees to come and sit and listen to anti-union propaganda, surveilling workers in the workplace, um, doing every trick in the book to try to prevent the workers from organizing. That's technically against the law, uh, but there are no penalties for it. In a case where you know somebody has been fired, which happens routinely, somebody has been fired for trying to organize or speak out on the job, corporations, after a years-long process of going through the National Labor Relations Board hearing process, corporations can then take it to the courts, the federal courts. And you know, if, if anything, the worker could get justice years down the road in the form of back pay. 
And so in the meantime, the corporation, this person's life has been destroyed. Many of their coworkers have not been able to make the progress that they wanted to see at the, at the workplace. Um, and the union's been busted, so to speak. So um, there are no penalties. The PRO Act would actually create penalties. If you break the law, you'll be punished. You will actually have to pay some meaningful penalties um, for violating workers' rights in this country. It would overturn um, right to work laws across the country. It would allow for workers to just um, have more uh, uh, sense of, of security uh, in being able to exercise their legal rights. So let's focus uh, in a bit on uh, what, what you called right to work. I, I hate saying it. I, yeah. you know, we're on a podcast. I can't put the air quotes around it. Um, what is so-called right to work? Yeah, you know, Goldie, that's a good point. We should have said right to work for less or, or as we call it, uh, right to mooch. Um, right to work is one of those, you know, Republican conservative phrases that they've come up, their message gurus, you know, things like uh, uh, referring to partial birth abortion or the, uh, the death tax, um, giving something a name that sounds different from what it really is. Um, well, as I said, what we should call right to work is right to work for less. Um, these are laws um, that have been passed in a number of states. Actually, let me let me for a second give you a little bit of history of right to work. Yeah, because because oh, it's a dark people, history. It's a yeah, it's a very dark history. Really, right to work was concocted by a bunch of Southern segregationist white supremacists um, as an effort to try to stop uh, unions. Um, they were funded by corporations as an effort to stop unions from growing in the South and as a way to keep workplaces from being integrated. Um, there was a guy um, by, I'm trying to remember his name, sorry. Um, Something Muse. Yes, um, yes, yes. Uh, Vance Muse, Vance Muse came out of the South, came out of Texas. Um, he was a corporate lobbyist. He was an avowed white supremacist, an anti-Semite. Um, and made a career off of fighting unions. He saw the New Deal and the efforts to strengthen labor laws in the country to give workers some power. He called it a, quote, communist Jewish conspiracy to take over the country. <laughs> he, he, he ran a campaign that uh, unionization, workers joining union, was really this communist Jewish conspiracy to force white workers to join unions with black workers and force them to call them brothers. Uh, and he said at a Senate committee hearing, he avowedly said it, at one point he said, I'm a Southerner and I'm for white supremacy. So um, he was ba bankrolled by corporations to really whip up this racist hysteria and to campaign to pass these right to work laws uh, in states all throughout the South. And then it's only grown since then as the corporations have seen how it's been an effective tool to weaken the power of unions and workers to come together. Um, they've been able to expand it now to, unfortunately, where we've seen it pass in Wisconsin and Michigan in just the last decade. So, so a lot of people understand right to work as saying uh, that, uh, you know, if there's a, you're in a union workplace, uh, this gives you the right not to join the union, but but that's not that's not really true. You under federal law, you don't have to join a union, even if it's in the workplace. Uh, right to work actually is is aimed at defunding the union by saying you don't have to pay your fair share for the cost of negotiating the contracts that you benefit from. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good way of putting it is it gives workers the right to mooch. And what I mean by that is 
that if your workplace is unionized and your state has a quote unquote right to work for less law on the books, you can choose to not pay uh, even a fair share to the union for the union's um, uh, work of negotiating and especially enforcing a contract. In, but you get all the benefits of that union contract. You get the negotiation, the union sits at the bargaining table, negotiates with the employer, uh, gets decent wages, um, benefit packages, a leave, a, a grievance process. Um, if you feel you've been wronged and you have a way to try to protect your job um, or to any sort of disciplinary action taken against you. Um, and what, what Right to Work says is you don't have to pay for any of that services, but the law also says that the union has an obligation to represent you. So the law says the union has to represent you. Um, you get the benefits of all the work that the union did to get a good pay package, a good contract. And you, the union has to represent you if you've been disciplined and you feel you've been wronged, but you don't have to pay a penny to the union for any of those services. And so it's like, you know, we should ask the Chamber of Commerce, which is a dues-based organization, why don't they provide services to every business in the country, whether or not they pay dues? Um, so to your point, Goldie, it is, it is a way to try to starve unions of any sort of financial resources to be able to do the work that's necessary uh, to improve contracts and especially to enforce contracts in the workplace to protect your rights on the job. Right. Your, your employer retaliates you, against you for something. You're not a member of the union. You're not paying these, sh these fair share fees. And the union now has to spend money um, <laughs> defending you and your grievance, has to hire lawyers, has to hire yep. people to deal with arbitration and so forth. And you get all of that free. And, and to be clear, so people understand the difference, uh, I'm here in Washington state, which is not a right to work state, which has one of the highest... Uh, uh, rates of union membership in the country and also has, uh, uh, as a result, and we'll get to this, has uh, one of the highest median incomes in the country too. And so if, if you work in a union workplace in Washington, you do not have to join the union. You do not have to pay the full union fees. So you are not spending money on the political and advocacy programs of the union. What you do have to do in Washington state uh, in a uh, well, in, in the private, if it's a private sector union, you do have to pay that fair share fee, which is the cost of negotiating the contracts and representing you in, dis uh, in disputes with the employer. That's what it's like in a in a non right to work uh, state. You go to a state like Texas you don't have to join the union because that's federal law, but you also don't have to pay those fair share fees. So you're getting everything that the union does for you for free because the union has to represent you and has to give you the same uh, contract that they negotiate for all their members. Yeah, correct. I mean, I think one of the most important points is that if you, you know, and there are people out there that just uh, fundamentally may disagree with political positions that the union has taken, especially in electoral politics. Uh, and, but to your point, Goldie, you already have a legal right to have your dues, the percent of your dues that goes to political action or anything that's not related to bargaining or enforcing a contract, you already can get that rebated. Um, uh, whether you're, whatever you disagree with, you can get that rebated. Um, but you do, do pay a fair share for those protections on the job that you're afforded through that union contract. What you see in these right to work uh, states, so-called right to work, the right to work for less states 
is a much lower level of union representation than you do in a state like Washington. Yes, you see a much lower rate of unionization in those states that have right to work laws, which is why the corporations are fighting and continue to fight so hard uh, to pass right to work laws in, in the states and why they oppose uh, the PRO Act as much as they do, um, because they're businessmen. They are all about making more profit for themselves. That is what they do for a living. And so they are focused on making sure that workers do not have the power to get their fair share of their employer's profits. And so that's why they like to spend their profits, invest it in politicians that pass the right to work laws. You know, workers in right to work states um, make on average about $1,600 or less than in um, non-right to work for less states. That's why we call it right to work for less. If you are a member, if you are a worker in a right to work state, you can't argue the facts. You make less money because there's less union density. So not only do you make about $1,600 less a year, workers in right to work states have less employer provided health insurance. So you're much less likely to get your health insurance through your workplace, through your employer. And it's significantly lower for retirement plans or pension plans uh, in those states. So it's to clear benefit for the corporations, for the employers, for right to work, because to your point, Goldie, it weakens the power of unions uh, to be able to fight for the workers. Right. And we're not just talking about union members or would-be union members uh, in these uh, right to work for less states, wages and benefits and workplace protections are lower across the board. Correct. Correct. That's an excellent point. It's not just union members that are making less. It's all workers who make less. And this is what we saw, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s in this country, when about 30 percent of the country belonged to unions. It really was a case of a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, people could survive on if they chose to on a one income household. They could live a good quality middle class life. But today, because the, the percent of the workforce that's unionized has declined, you know, we're seeing uh, workers across the board losing money where wages have not kept up with productivity. Workers are taking home less today um, than they took home in the 1970s. And if their wages kept up with how much wealth they're actually generating, their wages would be double what they are today. So um, it's a pure benefit to the corporations in this case, to the workers' detriment across the board, union or non-union. I think I know the answer to this question, but uh, what has this done to uh, inequality in these right to work for less states? Oh, it's clear. It's made inequality much, much worse. Um, you know, there was actually just last year, uh, American Journal of Sociology, uh, not a political uh, organization, not a union um, supported think tank, but they study issued a, a study that showed that the right to work laws lead to greater economic inequality. There is greater economic inequality. The richer are richer and the poor are poor in right to work states. Okay, so we have uh, lower wages for union members and non-union members in the right to work states. We have fewer benefits, healthcare, pension, retirement, etc. Uh, we have uh, greater inequality in these states. We have much higher levels. We haven't talked about this, but uh, of discrimination, workplace mm. discrimination charges in these right to work states. Surely when uh, politicians fight for these, when these 
passed in these states, they must be arguing that there's something in the benefit uh, of workers. Uh, well, what is the pro right to work argument that that seems to carry the day? And what it's more than two dozen states now. Yeah, we're up at about 26 states now. Um, they claim that it, it brings jobs, that the corporations ah. will move there and they will create jobs. But again, facts don't lie, contrary to what Fox News wants you to believe. But the research from EPI and others have shown that the right to work laws have no impact on job growth. I mean, they went and looked at Oklahoma, uh, which uh, I think was in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, that passed a right to work law. And they looked at the job creation before the law passed and after the law passed, and that there was no significant increase in jobs. In fact, manufacturing jobs actually declined in Oklahoma after the right to work law passed. And you know what, you don't have to take my word for it. There's a great YouTube video out there, um, a, a video that's been posted on YouTube, but it was a video of the governor of West Virginia, Governor Justice, who signed into law a right to work law in West Virginia. And he, in a moment of honesty, was caught on camera in a town hall Zoom session this last year saying, really and truly, let's just be brutally honest. We passed the right to work law in West Virginia, and we ran to the windows looking to see all the people that were going to come, and they didn't come. We've absolutely built the field in a lot of different places thinking, build the field and they'll come, and they didn't come. It, it, right to work does not create jobs, and it's proven. One of the one of the things uh, we like to say in our podcast is, and we talk about this in regards to the minimum wage, uh, which is when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers. It's a it's a virtuous cycle. Well, right right to work. It it sounds like as you're explaining it to me, it's a it's a vicious circle. When workers have less money, businesses have fewer customers and hire fewer workers. Yep, that's exactly what it is. And the only one who benefits in this whole process are again are the are the CEOs, are the Wall Street investors, um, are the are the one percent who are just getting richer off as wall workers uh, fall further and further behind in this country. So the House has passed the Pro Act, which would eliminate uh, this uh, right to work for less provision. It's not the first time the House has uh, tried to do it, but the the Democrats sort of control the Senate at the moment. What needs to be done to, to get this through Congress? I'm so glad you asked that question. So the first step is we have 50 on paper Democrats in the U.S. Senate. Of those 50 Democrats, uh, 47 of them have co-sponsored the PRO Act, are public supporters of the PRO Act. Two of them have been indicating uh, that they will vote to bring the bill to the floor. They'd like to see some changes to it, but they support the PRO Act, uh, the goals of the PRO Act. And that's Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona and Mark Warner from Virginia. So the two of them have not co-sponsored, um, but they have indicated that they support the PRO Act should it come to the floor. They'd like to see some changes, work on some changes, but would support passage of the PRO Act. That leaves us with Kristen Cinema. All roadblocks seem to originate with Kristen Cinema these days. And the interesting thing is, one of the most frustrating things for us in labor is, is that she will not meet with labor. She is not having conversations with labor. Her staff are not having conversations with labor. And I'm talking about Arizona labor, her constituents. 
But she has been reported, and the videos are out there, of meeting with business groups to talk about the PRO Act um, and to, to raise concerns about the PRO Act. But we're hopeful that, you know, in Alaska, the Republican congressman in Alaska uh, enthusiastically supported um, the PRO Act. Alaska is one of those states that has a very high union density. Um, and Republicans, believe it or not, even in Alaska, get it. Senator Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski, has not come out against the PRO Act. Um, and so there's been a lot of conversations with her. Um, we're hopeful she may support it to give us that 50th vote. Um, we're hopeful that Kristen Cinema will see the light of day um, and will come around. But even if we get those 50 senators, we still have that damn filibuster standing in the way of real progress for working people. And so we have got to um, not only get, the, uh, get 50 Democrats or 50 senators on board with the PRO Act, but we have got to change the Senate rules to be able to get this done. Now, we're hopeful that some of the provisions of the PRO Act may make it into the budget reconciliation process. Uh, we believe that there's a very strong case to be made, and Bernie Sanders is one of those that's been working so hard on this, along with Sherrod Brown from Ohio and Bob Casey from Pennsylvania and others, to get provisions into the Reconciliation Act. For example, the penalties piece that we started off talking about. Right. That is a revenue raiser for the government of increasing those penalties. So we are very, very hopeful that it's not the transformative change that our labor laws in this country need, but there are things that can be done through the budget reconciliation, especially in terms of the penalties piece or preventing corporations from deducting their expenses. You know, right now we are subsidizing corporations for running their union busting uh, uh, campaigns. Right, right, that's over $300 million a year that they're-, right. they're in deductions, because that's what they're spending to uh, bust unions. Yep. And right now we subsidize that by allowing them to deduct that from their from their taxes. So that's why corporations like T-Mobile uh, actually paid nothing in federal income taxes, because one of the things they've been doing is deducting their union busting expenses that they've spent over the last decade to stop the workers from there at T-Mobile from joining CWA. So um so we, we believe that's another tax code change that could be made through the reconciliation process that we no longer as taxpayers are subsidizing corporations for uh, running union busting uh, campaigns. So essentially, if uh, our listeners want to uh, do something about this, want to contribute to the cause, it's uh, politics. They should be contacting their senators, contacting senators like uh, Kristen Sinema, who's, who's up for re-election, right? That was a special. She's actually, it's Mark Kelly who's up this. Uh, oh, no, okay. 20, she's up in 2024. She's up in 2024. So, so it's it's the usual putting pressure on on politics. Tell Democrats, uh, remind them that it turns out that doing popular things is popular because voters overwhelmingly support that. Support for labor has has never been higher, from what I understand. Right. We've never seen. It's it's up in the 60s. Um, the support for uh, labor unions today. Our polling, uh, we've got a really great coalition of organizations supporting the PRO Act. And it's not just labor unions. It's groups like Move On and Indivisible and Rideshare Drivers United, um, the Sunrise Movement, Democratic Socialists of America, the Working Families Party um, have all come together that are prioritizing passage of the PRO Act. And we did polling and 70% of the voters in Alaska support the PRO Act. 60 some percent of the mid 60s of voters in Arizona support the PRO Act. 
So we're not talking about 60% of voters in New York, or God bless the Washington State where you are, Goldie. We're talking about red states as well, where the workers want to have some power on the job. Right. In the end, it's all about, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, it's all about power. There's this uh, just built-in imbalance of power in the labor market, and uh, that's why we have unions to help balance that. So if, if we want wages to go up, we need to uh, shift that uh, power and balance a little bit back in favor of workers again. Yep. And if you want to make sure your workplace is safe and healthy, make sure workers have a voice to be able to speak out and not be afraid that if they talk about unsanitary conditions or not having PPEs, that they can feel free to feel comfortable without fear of speaking out about that and try to get the protections that they deserve and need. Yeah. So I've got one one final question for you, Shane. We ask all our guests this. Uh, why do you do this work? Uh, that's a great question. I do this work because really for me, it's about the members of CWA that I am blessed and fortunate to be able to represent every day. I mean, we're talking about folks that go out there to make sure in the middle of this pandemic that made sure that your internet connection, which is so absolutely critical and vital today, was uh, up and running. We represent nurses who you know, were uh, on the front lines of this pandemic, our public sector members who are making sure that the government services that you need are there. I mean, so for me, it's like, it, it's really, I do what I do because so many workers in our society today don't think they have a voice. One of my favorite moments of my whole career was going with a group of bank workers um, who worked in a call center to talk about the sort of predatory practices that the bank was forcing them to do. And um, uh, one of them gave a presentation to a group of Congress members, and um, they all, the Congress members became very engaged and asked questions. I've never seen a group of Congress members so engaged before. And um, at the end of the day, I asked her how she thought the day went, and she started to cry, and she looked at me and she said, Shane, for the first time in my life, I feel like I've been heard. And to me, that's why I do what I do, is to make sure that, that, that the people like that recognize that they have a voice and they can use that voice. Well, as a, as a former journalist at a non-union alt-weekly, um, I certainly could have used your, your, your support <laughs> in having my voice heard in the workplace and maybe, uh, uh, you know, having been making a decent living there. So uh, I appreciate all the work you do. No, thank you. And thank you for giving us opportunities to talk about these issues. We, I wish more journalists would, would be engaging like you guys are on these topics. I hope you all got as much out of that conversation as I did. And if you want more information, of course, go to the show notes and we provide a bunch of links. And, and I just want to emphasize one thing about why this is so important and why right to work is such a uh, destructive uh, law. Uh, recently, we talked with political scientist Margaret Levy, and one of the points she made is, and she was talking about tax law, this notion of quasi-voluntary compliance, that people are willing to pay their taxes as long as they know that everybody else is paying their taxes too. And that requires some sort of force from the state to make that happen, that the tax cheats will be caught. Well, this is the pernicious thing about right to work, is that it allows people to free ride. It allows people to opt out. Otherwise, everybody's willing to pay their union fees. They're willing to pay their fair share as long as they know that everybody else is paying it too. 
But when you allow people to opt out, when you allow people to free ride on your own fees, well, fewer and fewer people will pay those fees, meaning that more people will feel like there are free riders and they'll start opting out too. And that's the vicious cycle that the anti-union people rely on to undermine unions and their ability to represent workers. So again, anything you can do, contact your reps, pay attention to this issue. It's really important, not just for union workers throughout the country, but for all workers. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.